Thank you, uh, Darren. Uh, good morning, everyone. Yeah, good to see you on this beautiful morning. All right, and uh, I suppose we are the remnant of Abbey Church, as so many seem to be away making the most of the bank holiday weekend and so on. But it's good to have those who are with us this morning, um, visitors for the first time, and uh, also uh, those whose faces... Well, the elders have almost started to visit them because they don't seem to come too often to the church and they wonder what's wrong, you know. But uh, it's great to have uh, Chris's parents with us today. So we continue... um, Thank you. Um, So we continue in our series in Acts. And uh, uh, if we remember, and we should know anyway, that back in uh, the first chapter of Acts, in verse 8, Jesus has said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And uh, so far in our series, um, the action has been all in and around Jerusalem. Uh, And uh, today we see uh, the first uh, wave of the ripple effect, as triggered, of course, by the martyrdom of Stephen. uh, The gospel crosses its first boundary uh, to move throughout Judea and into Samaria. And uh, in my NIV Bible, uh, the passage we have this morning is divided into uh, three parts. And uh, they seem to be quite natural divisions to me as I read the passage through. And so I'd like to go through them each uh, in that particular way. And then we'll try to pull things together at the end for what the implications might be for us this morning here at Abbey. And so, um, crossing the boundaries... The Gospel to Samaria. And uh, these are the natural divisions. And in each of them, we're presented with contrasts. In verses 1 and 3, I want to think of that in terms of honor and dishonor. 4 to 8, the good news and the bad news. And then in 9 to 25, true and false. Verses 1 to 3, then, honor and dishonor. And in verse 2, um, I think we see honor. We read that godly men buried Stephen, and in doing this, they were honoring them. But for them to mourn Stephen was, for them, a pretty risky thing to do. Uh, here they were being prepared to stand up, and they were prepared to be counted. Um, identifying themselves with Stephen, but also as followers of the Lord Jesus. So they were putting themselves at risk as his fellow believers uh, honored him. But Stephen um, was not uh, only honored by men, by his fellow believers, but I'm I'm sure also by God uh, as well. If you remember, as Stephen was being stoned, he looked up into heaven, uh, and he saw heaven open, and he saw the glory of God. What a wonderful sight that must have been for him to see at that moment of suffering and martyrdom as he gives his life for the Lord Jesus. 
And then, not only the glory of God, but Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And of course, in a short while, Stephen was going to be received up into God's presence, where I'm sure he would be honoured by God to receive what Jesus said would be a great reward. When Jesus was speaking in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verse 12, he spoke about those who are going to be persecuted for Jesus' sake, and he said that their reward will be great uh, in heaven. So Stephen was honored by uh, his fellow believers uh, and by God himself, but sandwiched either side of verse 2 in verse 1 in verse 3, I think we see how he was dishonored too. Dishonored by Saul, and uh, who was the one who was there consenting to his death. But, of course, Stephen was not just going to be a one-off. It was just the beginning. As it marked the start of what we read was a great persecution that broke out against the church. And the effect of this, we read, was to scatter the believers throughout Judea and Samaria, would you believe? And uh, we read that uh, Saul's objective was to destroy the church. That was where the man was. And uh, he did it, of course, all in the name of religion, as he saw it and as he believed. And he believed, in a way, I suppose, that he must be pleasing God, because all this was sort of new and radical and contrary to everything he'd ever been taught and learnt. But uh, he set about destroying the church in what was an intensive and vicious campaign. We read that he went from house to house, dragging off men and women and putting them in prison. Christians being flushed out from the privacy of their own homes in an extreme way. Both men and women. And I understand in my background preparation that in other persecutions that there had been, very often it was just the men that were taken. But here, Paul... Saul, as he was then, was out to destroy the church. And so he takes the men and the women. It's vicious. And the word destroy, that's translated destroy in uh, verse 3, can also be be taken to mean make havoc or ravage. Ravage. As uh, a wild animal would, 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 would pursue its prey and hunt it down. And, uh, and, and tear it to pieces in a particularly vicious way. Jesus had said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. However, what we see here seems to be the very opposite. <laughs> the church seems to be going backwards. Saul is there in his campaign to destroy it. But of course, we know the end of the story. We know how the story goes on, and we've read it this morning. And it's far from the truth, as in the rest of uh, our passage, the action moves from Jerusalem to uh, Samaria. And so we come to verses 4 to 8, um, where we see what I would suggest is both good news and bad news. The bad news, of course, is that the church continues to suffer such appalling persecution. 
So many of the believers have had to up sticks. They had to leave their homes in what seems to be a situation that's all too common to us today when we see refugee, the refugee situation in so many parts of the world through suffering of one sort and another. But not only then, but also down through history and in our world today, God has a way, it would seem, of making mission, uh, sorry, making persecution serve the mission of the church. God has a way of making persecution serve the mission of the church. So the church is not destroyed, as Saul would have wanted, but it grows. It grew. It continues to grow. And in fact, I understand that it continues to grow faster today than ever it has done. Praise God. Hallelujah. Um, I can't think of his name now, but I think he's associated with WEC. And uh, he used to keep what was pretty much known as the Bible for missionaries. Some of the missionary folk here this morning will probably be able to tell me chapter and verse on this. And uh, pretty much every year he would survey all the countries. Um, and he had his sources there. and They would feed in statistics. And he would keep um, like an up-to-date manual going for mission where you could see just what the situation was in any country as far as faith was concerned. Um, but they now say it's impossible to keep track of that because there are so many unknowns. You take China with all that's happening there. They know what's happening amongst the church, churches that are registered. But in the churches that are underground and meet in homes and meet in secret in other parts of the world like that, um, there's been an explosion. And whatever they record in that manual now, they know that the situation is much greater. It, church has never grown faster than it has today. We praise God for that, for all that he's doing. We don't see it here, sadly. But uh, elsewhere, it's all going on. Verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And it is Philip who comes down to Samaria to proclaim the Christ, to proclaim the Christ. The result? Well, we read, many believe, many are baptized, many are healed in various ways as the power of God is seen through Philip in quite an extraordinary way. And then we come to what I think is a beautiful verse, that verse 8. Amidst all the suffering that they had known in the church, amidst all the trauma of upping sticks and getting away from their homes and being turned out and just escaping as refugees, amidst all that trauma that God's people were going through, we read there was great joy. There was great joy in that city as they saw what God and the gospel was doing. And that, of course, is not only good news. Beyond that, it's, it's great news. It's great news when we see people coming to faith and the gospel advancing. And, of course, in coming to Samaria, the gospel was crossing more than a geographical boundary. And I think this is of significance and it's almost as though Jesus, in that verse that we had up originally, makes a particular point of this. That the gospel would go uh, from Jerusalem 
and it would go through all Judea and Samaria. And beyond that, it's just an awe to the ends of the earth, all the other countries, all the other nations. The Samaritans were part Jew and they were part Gentile. And their origins, I understand, go back to the time when, uh, um, 761 BC, there was an Assyrian captivity in the days of the Assyrian Empire. And they came and overran Israel, doing their deeds of destruction. And they took away uh, many people captive uh, back to wherever. Um, But there were those who stayed and occupied the territory. And what happened was that intermarriage began to take place between uh, the, the Jews and the occupying Assyrian people. And those people were the Samaritans. Now, of course, uh, God had warned <laughs> against uh, intermarriage for his people. Um, But what had happened was that there had been compromise in their worship, uh, such that the Samaritans retained a form of worship of God. They even go on uh, to build their own temple. They even go on to have their own priesthood. And their sacred mountain is Gerizim, and uh, not Jerusalem. And that's where they believe Abraham prepared to offer Isaac. But in with that form of worship of God, based on the five books of Moses, the law, they also introduce um, the worship of idols. And so it was a compromised form of worship, worshiping God, but also idolatry mixed in with it. And as a consequence of that, No wonder we read that the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. If you remember what what, uh, was said when Jesus met with that woman at the well in Samaria. But here we see that just as Jesus was prepared to talk to that woman at the well and share the wonder of the gospel with her uh, and break through all of those long-standing traditions that there had been, so now... Philip and the other believers, as they come to Samaria, they too are prepared to see that the gospel has no barriers. And if the gospel has no barriers, then they just had to share the gospel where they were to who was there. Samaritans. And the blessing of God comes upon them as they come to faith in Christ. And so many wonderful things are done in the name of Jesus. And so if the gospel knows no barriers, (laughs) we shouldn't be those people who are guilty going around erecting them. And uh, there's a question for those who do the uh, uh, discussion material in in your community groups during the week, where uh, I ask you to think a little bit about this and uh, say, what are those ways in which we, in our day and age, actually can be guilty of erecting barriers? when the gospel should be no barriers, because the gospel is for all. Of course, um, wherever God is at work, 
Satan is not far away. And uh, he has his designs to undermine and destroy uh, all of God's works. Whatever God builds, Satan wants to destroy. Uh, And that's what we see in the remainder of uh, our passage. Verses 9 to 25, it's the major part of uh, the passage. And here we see the true and the false. And we're introduced to this character, Simon the Sorcerer. And he was somebody who would amaze the people by what he could do through his magic, such that they called him, in my translation, NIV, it was the great power. But in the translation that uh, Darren used, it says the great power of God. They thought the guy was that wonderful with what he could do through his magic. But when he saw God working through Philip and the amazing things that God was doing and that the people were responding by believing in being baptized, we find that Simon now wants to be part of the action. (laughs) He is being upstaged with what God is doing rather than the things that he could achieve through, through magic. And so uh, he wants some of it for himself. And uh, we'll find out the reasons why. And so he, we are told, believes. And then he is also baptized along with the others. And we read that he followed Philip around intently. So in all, to all intents and purposes, he is numbered amongst those who respond to the gospel and come to faith in Jesus. But of course, his response is not real. It's not true. It's not a sincere response. He was still in his sin. Philip said he was not right with God. And I suppose in the words of Donald Trump, what we see in Simon is fake faith, is fake faith. Not a true response, not a real response uh, to the gospel. And uh, when Peter and John arrived from Jerusalem to lay hands uh, on those who had responded to the gospel to receive the Holy Spirit, oh, his eyes light up even more, Simon's. Because he wants part of that as well. He wants to be able to do this. Think what would do for this would do for his following if he could do all of these things. And uh, we read that he was even prepared to pay money to be able to have that gift. He believed that all of this blessing from God, which comes with response to the gospel through faith. And through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, he wanted all of that and believed it could be bought. And so he is condemned uh, by Peter for being being full of bitterness and captive to sin. And uh, Peter, and he's he's told that he needs to repent, uh, but he's not prepared to do that. He can't somehow bring himself to bow the knee in sincerity and out of conviction of his own sin that he needed to repent before God before by faith he could know Jesus 
as his saviour. And so he asks Peter, if he, well, will you pray for me? He said, will you pray for me? You're, you're the one I want to do it. I'm not going to do this myself. And so we see those who are responding in truth and in sincerity. And God is blessing them in great joy. Is in that place. But then we see that uh, there is this false response, this fake response to the gospel. And we must remember that God knows our hearts. God knows our hearts. The Lord knows those who are his somewhere, it says in the Bible. And as we come this morning and meet together as church, he knows our hearts, doesn't he? He knows whether he can look in and see truth in sincerity and a true desire to seek him or whether somehow we're just putting up some outward show. We come here for all the wrong reasons. They might be good reasons to us, but they're the wrong reasons as far as God is concerned. And somehow it's all a facade, really. And we're putting on that mask to appear like everyone else. But God knows our hearts. So then, honour and dishonour. Good news and bad news. True and false. In conclusion, let's just try to pull this uh, together. And I, I think we can see that right from the beginning of the church, the die is cast. Jesus had said, I will build my church. But Satan was going to oppose it. But Jesus, we know, will have the last word because he then went on to say, and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Nothing is going to stop it. I will build my church, praise God. And we rejoice in that. But we see that Satan is at work. He's always at work where God is at work. And, and his methods would be both overt and covert. We see that Satan's activities and designs are in evidence here in an overt way with the persecution that everybody could see that was going on. They could see that. It was overt. It was open uh, to everybody to see. But it was covert in the deception that we see with Simon the sorcerer. That undermining, that undermining, that subtle, that deceptive way in which Satan works to undermine the work of God. And of course, the Bible says, and Satan has always been and continues to be, both the roaring lion who goes around in an overt way and the angel of light who comes to us in a covert way, decepting and undermining. And yet, it's, uh, in that same way, it would seem that God causes the wrath of man to praise him, from Psalm 76. We have seen he has that way of making persecution serve the mission of the church. In such a way that uh, Tertullian, as early as 197 AD, said those famous words, the blood of the martyrs would be the seed of the church. As early 
is 197 AD, not far down the track at all. And uh, speaking on this passage of scripture, I looked up what John Piper uh, had to say. And he talks of the way that God rules over the sufferings of the church and causes them to spread spiritual power and the joy of faith in a lost world. It is not only his way, it, it is not his only way, sorry, but it does seem to be a frequent way. God spurs the church into missionary service by the suffering she endures. How then do we need to be in the face of persecution? Paul, of course, in Ephesians 6 says that we need to put on the whole armor of God so that we can take our stand against the devil's schemes. Put on the whole armor of God. Um, that we can take our stand. Very briefly, going back in the day to probably 50 years now, in our 20s, uh, Anne and I went to listen to a guy called Richard Wumbrandt. Some of you may have heard of him. He wrote the book, Tortured for Christ. If you bombarded each day by emails uh, from Eden uh, Book Company, you'll see that even during the past week, they are promoting on special offer his book, Tortured for Christ. He was a pastor in Romania during the days of communism and on more than one occasion was imprisoned uh, for his faith. And uh, when he was finally released because of the activities of United Nations and so on and so forth, I believe, um, he came... Uh, to the west <clears throat> and uh, he came to Bristol where we were living at the time and Anne and I went to to listen to this man and during the evening uh, he said um, for those of you who expect me to come tonight and give an anti-communist tirade he said I'm afraid you're going to be disappointed he said we love the communists we love the communists and he went on to talk of the way in which he could cite prisoner after prisoner, prison warder after prison warder, who had come to faith in Christ. He said, but I cannot recall one believer who defected to communism. Taking the whole armor of God so that we can take our stand against the devil's schemes. Uh, but I hear you say this morning, but uh, in God's goodness, we don't face persecution. So none of this lot is for us this morning. It's very nice to know, very interesting to hear. Um, but it's not us. We're not in that situation. John Piper went on to warn of the danger of comfort, of ease, and prosperity. The very things that we think will produce personnel and energy and creative investment in time and money in the cause of Christ in his kingdom instead produce again and again the exact opposite. Weakness, apathy, lethargy, self-centeredness, preoccupation with security. And so we see that there's a roaring line. And as an angel of light, Satan 
tactics are still today relevant. They are overt and they are covert. And in our complacency, the danger is that we can just go belly up and become totally ineffective in our witness for God. Finally, John Piper points out the wonderful way in which adversaries can become advocates. Adversaries can become advocates. Referring to the way in which Saul of Tarsus will be dramatically converted to become the best friend in advocate Christianity has ever known. I love that one. Dramatically converted to become the best friend in advocate Christianity has ever known. And so uh, we can be encouraged through that. The wonderful way that God works, even in the face of persecution. We need to look on our adversaries, those that seem to be against us, with the eyes of faith. That someday, by the power of God, through our witness, they could experience a turnaround as amazing and as unexpected as Saul of Tarsus. So, take out for this morning. Honour those who are persecuted for Jesus' sake. The gospel knows no barriers, so do not erect them. Beware of fake faith, and don't be guilty of it. Be encouraged. God has a way of making persecution serve the mission of the church. Adversaries can become advocates. Beware the danger of comfort, ease, and prosperity. May God help us in this for his namesake and glory. Amen.